pray together. Lord, we thank you that your mercies never cease, that your compassions never fail. They are new every morning, and your faithfulness is great. You are our portion, and therefore we have hope in you. So, Lord, we thank you that we could sing of your mercy just now. We thank you that we experience your mercy in saving us in the first place, and then mercy every day for whatever the needs are. You have compassion and kindness toward your children. And you offer mercy to your enemies. Lord, you offer mercy to rebels. And I pray for anyone who is here today who doesn't know you yet, that they would experience your saving mercy even today. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, in Sunday school we saw a group of believers who were just so hungry for your word. They just spent hours uh, listening to it taught. I pray you give us a hunger now to hear what you have to say through your word. Enable us by the Spirit to understand what we hear and to embrace what we hear by faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes something in the future can seem less real because it's taking a while. For example, on a bitterly cold day when you're already weary of winter, it's almost hard to believe that spring will get here and that it will be warm again. But in spite of our feelings, spring will come because God promised the changing of the seasons in Genesis 8.22. Our text for today reminds us that in spite of a perceived delay, Jesus Christ will return just as he promised. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter together. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So Peter reminded us of the value of reminders in chapter 1. He said, I know you already know these things, but I want to stir you up by reminding you again. And here in chapter 3, he wants to stir us up with some reminders about the Lord's Return. So he starts by telling us that we ought to expect there to be mockers or scoffers. Verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So these people are mocking. To mock means to treat with contempt or ridicule. 
word scoff means to laugh at or say things to show you think something or someone is stupid and deserves no respect. So these people aren't sincerely asking for more information about Christ's return. They're making fun of it. Somehow these mockers had heard that Jesus promised to come back. Maybe they had overheard some believers talking about it. And they say, well, where is he? Why hasn't he come back yet? Seems like everything's just the same as it has always been. D.A. Carson writes this, In every generation there will be scoffers who sneer at the notion of Christ's return. Sometimes this scoffing will be grounded in a profoundly anti-Christian worldview. In our own day, philosophical naturalism obviously has no place for the ultimate supernatural visit to planet Earth, nor even for an end of history brought about by God himself. Such perspectives often have moral dimensions to them. It is so much more convenient for those who cherish their own moral autonomy to deny that there is a final accounting. So we shouldn't be surprised if we hear people say, well, if there's a God, he certainly doesn't intervene in human history. He maybe started the world going, and now he's governing it by laws of nature that don't change, but nothing's going to happen differently than what we've seen happen so far. Or maybe they'll say, you can't really expect us to believe that a man who died 2,000 years ago is somehow going to come back and visit the earth again. So how does Peter respond to the skepticism about the Lord's return? He starts with a reminder that God has intervened in the past. Verse 5. For when they maintain this, It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So these mockers are deliberately overlooking something. They're closing their eyes and ignoring something they should be noticing, namely the flood. Everything hasn't stayed the same ever since creation. God intervened very dramatically by sending a worldwide flood to the earth. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. We'll start in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So he never took a break from having evil thoughts in his heart. Verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Verse 17, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. And then turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And the Lord Jesus makes reference to the flood. Verse 36. 
But at that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Peter's point is, just because it looks like things are business as usual, don't assume that God will let things go indefinitely. He judged the world before by a flood. He will judge the world again the next time by fire. Look at verse 7 of 2 Peter 3. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 13 talks about the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So God is not mocked. He will have the last word in spite of the unbelief of mockers. Christ Christ will return just as he promised. Next, Peter reminds us that God sees time differently than we do. Verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. It might seem like a long time has elapsed from our perspective, but God is eternal. He is the one who was and is and is to come, and so it's not surprising that his relationship to time is different from ours. So think of a family road trip. After you've been driving for a while, inevitably one of the kids will say, are we there yet? This trip is taking forever. Now, is that really true? No. From a kid's perspective, it might feel like this trip will never end. But as an adult, you know that is not reality. Adults see time differently than kids do, and God sees time differently Than we do. Peter borrows from Psalm 90. I invite you to turn to Psalm 90 for where he gets one of his phrases. Starting in verse 1 Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. Now, please be aware 
that we do not have the liberty to change a simile that uses the word like and turn it into a statement with the word is and then try to say a day equals billions of years. And the reason people try to do that is to try to fit the creation account into the scientifically flawed theory of evolution. There's really no need to do that. Peter is not trying to rewrite Genesis. He's reminding us of what seems like a long time to us is not a long time to God. So here's a couple other texts that apply not only just to the Lord's timing of his return, but in a secondary way, the delays of things in our lives, like an answer to prayer, maybe you've been praying for something for a while, hasn't happened yet. So here's some verses about God's way of seeing time and how it's differently than us. So in Isaiah 54, 7, God says, For a brief moment I forsook you. Do you know how long he's talking about for that brief moment? Seventy years. God calls that a brief moment. We would say 70 years is a long time. Brief moment. Or James chapter 4, verse 14 says, You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So your whole lifetime, let's say 70, 80 years is about as long as the steam that comes off your hot coffee or about as long as the breath you can see outside on a cold day. That's it. We think 78 years is a long time. God says it's vapor. So if you want to do math, let's say you're waiting for a prayer request for eight months before it's answered. That's 1% of a brief moment. It's 1% of a vapor. So we need to try. We can't because our brains are too small. But we, we want to have a category for that God sees time differently than we do. So if we think it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said he's coming back, that's a long time. From God's point of view, it's only like a couple days. God's timing is always perfect. And so in spite of what seems like a delay, the Lord will return just as he promised. So after reminding us of God's intervention in the past and that God sees time differently than we do, Peter reminds us why the Lord has not returned yet. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So first of all, the reason is not that the Lord is slow or slack. He is not procrastinating. And he just hasn't gotten around to it yet. Like, yeah, I said I'd come back, but something came up. He's, he's not slow or slack. It's not about inability or indifference. It's about merciful patience. It says it's not that he's slow concerning his promise, but is patient toward you. 
And then in verse 15, he'll say it again. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. How should we interpret the phrase, not wishing or not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance? Is it talking about God's sovereign will? And when I say sovereign will, I mean what God has ordained to happen that will most certainly happen. So verses like Isaiah 46, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's no one like me saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God's God, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the heavens of earth. No one can stay his hand or say what have you done. He's sovereign. He does what he wants to do and only what he wants to do. And so Job 42 verse 2 says, I know, O Lord, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted or frustrated. God is never, oh, I wish this could have happened or I wish that could have happened. He's sovereign. So if that's the way 2 Peter 3, 9 means God's willing then all men will come to repentance and no one will perish. All people will be saved and go to heaven. That is sometimes called universalism. And it's popular in various forms. There's the full-blown regular form and then there's the subtle form that you hear at virtually every funeral that everybody goes to a better place. It's universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. But if you've been reading your Bible, you know everyone doesn't turn from sin and turn to God in repentance. We know that not everyone does trust in Christ for salvation, and so they will perish in their sins as a consequence. So we can rule out the idea that verse 9 is talking about God's sovereign will. It seems best to understand verse 9 in terms of God's desire or disposition. Both New American Standard and ESV use the phrase, not wishing for any to perish. And by using that word, it's making a distinction between what God would like to see happen and what he actually ordains to happen. So let me give you an example to just give us a category for those two things working together. Go to Proverbs 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Verse 16 and 17. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. So God hates that. He hates innocent blood being shed. But we know that Jesus was absolutely innocent. And his blood was shed. Then go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. The Apostle Peter says in verse 23... Referring to Jesus, this man, 
delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And then turn over to chapter 4 of Acts, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So from Proverbs you would say, God does not wish or God does not desire that innocent people be put to death. And yet in Acts it says God ordained that an innocent person be put to death. So there's two levels of willing going on. I don't want innocent people killed. I ordain an innocent person to be killed. So that's the category. And let's look at some more verses. So let's go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18. Verse 23. God says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Go to Ezekiel 30. Three, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? So very similar to Second Peter 3, 9. Not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. He's saying, repent, come back. Here's what Matthew Henry says on those verses from Ezekiel. Those that despaired of finding mercy with God are here answered with a solemn declaration of God's readiness to show mercy. It is certain that God has no delight in the ruin of sinners, nor does he desire it. If they will destroy themselves, he will glorify himself in it, but he has no pleasure in it, but would rather they should turn and live for his goodness is that attribute of his which is most to his glory and which is most his delight. He would rather sinners should turn and live than go on and die. So we say yes. Ezekiel's true. Matthew Henry's right. And we also know God doesn't grant repentance to everyone. Acts 11.18 talks about, so then God has granted, given as a free gift, the repentance that leads to life, even to the Gentiles. So, calls all men to repent, doesn't grant repentance to everybody. Doesn't want anybody to perish, but some people do perish. So, how does that go together? So, here's a couple illustrations, and then I'll try to tie it up. So, stay with me. So, first... Harold Oti murdered a young woman in Omaha a number of years ago. This is what was in the Sioux City Journal about it. 
the board voted two to one against commuting Odie's sentence to life in prison. Governor Ben Nelson, who is also a member of the pardons board, said he would not reconvene the board to reconsider the issue. Quote, while I desire or I derive no pleasure in the taking of any human life, the death penalty is the law in Nebraska, and I support it. So as governor, Nelson has the authority to commute this sentence that was a death sentence to life in prison. He actually could give a pardon. He has that kind of authority as governor, but he doesn't do that, even though he takes no pleasure in the death of anybody. Because he's committed to supporting the law and seeing that justice is done, he did not stop the execution of this man, even though he could have. So there's two things going on at once. I don't desire the death of anyone. I will carry out the death of this person. Or a little simpler example, when Caleb, our son, was young, he did something that deserved to be punished. And I told him, I wish I didn't have to spank you. And he very quick on his feet said, well, Dad, you're the head of the house. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. And I, I mean, I was tempted to just let him go just for being that sharp. <laughs> but he's right. And I have the authority to spank or not to spank. That is my God-given authority in the home. But I tried to explain to him, I don't enjoy spanking my kids. But... I care about upholding the rules of our family, so I am going to spank you. No delight in it? Still going to do it. No delight in the death of the wicked? Still going to let wicked perish. Not willing that any should perish? Some do perish. And so sincere Christians have come to different conclusions about what to do with verse 9, but I believe the best way to understand it is to think in terms of two levels of willing that at one level God sincerely wishes that no one would perish and that all would come to repent. But he does not bring that outcome about because there is something he desires more and wills more than that all people would be saved. So what is that? So let me read from John Piper. I affirm with John 3.16 and 1 Timothy 2.4 that God loves the world with a deep compassion that desires the salvation of all men. Yet I also affirm that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world whom he will save from sin. Since not all people are saved, we must choose whether we believe that God's will to save all people is restrained by his commitment to human self-determination or whether we believe that God will save, not save all people, is restrained by his commitment to the glorification of his sovereign grace. So let's be Bereans. We talked about that last week. Diligently search the scriptures to see if what's spoken is so. So which of those two views lines up most closely with clear texts? 
And I'm persuaded that the most biblically compelling view is to say the reason God does not save all people is for the glory of his sovereign grace. So we can talk about that more if you want, some setting. But the main thing is what does the Bible clearly teach from clear texts? I think that's where we need to land. Well, as we close, we've seen that one reason why Christ hasn't returned yet is because he is patiently giving people time to repent before it is too late. This is what it says in Acts chapter 17. Paul is in Athens. He says in verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. If God is mercifully showing you that you're not ready to face Christ on the day of judgment, first of all, acknowledge, I need to repent. I've been going the wrong way. I've been going away from God, and I'm heading in the wrong direction toward condemnation and hell itself. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. So we've turned away from God, doing our own thing, and we're heading in the wrong direction. And so we turn from sin and turn to God. Listen to these words from Isaiah 55. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So here's this invitation. Come, return, come back to God. You'll be spared, you'll be saved. So we turn away from trusting anything that we could do and trust Christ alone for salvation. Believing that Christ's death on the cross paid the guilt of our sin. Nothing else could pay it. We can't pay it. Hell itself can't pay it. Christ paid it all in full. And they rose again so that all who believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's what Paul says in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for those who are trusting in Christ this morning, we've been reminded that in spite of scoffers and in spite of the perceived delay, Jesus will return, just like he promised. And Peter's goal wasn't just to tell us that. His goal, remember, is to stir us up. I think one of the things he wants to stir us up to do is have an appropriate sense of longing for Jesus to come back. And so let's just close with... These verses from 2 Timothy 4. 
2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is at the end of his life. He knows it. He knows he's going to be executed any day. And so he says, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, Mr. Apostle, about to be martyred, I'm not the only one who gets this crown of righteousness, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Not just believed he's coming back in your head. Love his appearing. I think that's what Peter's trying to stir up. Don't just believe it as a doctrine. It's true, and you should believe it as a doctrine. But it, there should be some kind of affection like, I want him to come back. And we'll talk more about that next week, Lord willing, because next week is also about the Lord's return. But uh, that's a sneak preview anyway. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that you showed mercy to us in Christ. That even though we all deserve to stand before the judgment and be condemned and sentenced to everlasting misery, because Jesus took our place, we are instead looking forward to everlasting joy in your presence. So thank you for doing that miracle. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you yet, who are still at great risk, whose future is very scary if things are not made right soon. Lord, I pray that you would show mercy to them and that they would repent and turn to Christ before it's too late. And Lord, for those you have rescued by your sheer grace, Lord, would you work in our hearts that we do love your appearing, and that there would be an appropriate longing and desire for your return. We can't do it ourselves. We can't just make that happen by our own efforts. We ask for grace to have the right longing in our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand.